Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. So today on Water Women, we are joined by a very special guest. She is a National Geographic Society explorer in residence, Time Magazine's first hero of the planet, an oceanographer, explorer, author, lecturer, director of several corporate and nonprofit organizations, and is known as a living legend. Today, we are joined by her deepness, Dr. Sylvia Earle. Dr. Earle, it is truly such an honor to get to sit down and talk to you today, and I am so excited to be able to pick your brain and learn all about you. So thank you for joining us. Well, it's great to be on board. (laughs) I'm so excited. So I know you've done many interviews before, but I like to dive right in and go right back to the beginning. So when you were a young girl, what made you fall in love with the ocean? What was kind of your, this is it, this is, this is what I'm going for moment. Everyone should fall in love with the ocean when they're truly first acquainted with the ocean. And I was about three years old, I, I believe, when my parents took a vacation on the New Jersey shore. And I remember hearing the ocean from as, as we approached it and, and smelling that distinctive aroma. It was a wonderful, oh, well, the smell of the sea. And then coming over the dunes, actually see the ocean and I raced over and touched the ocean anyway it it was an experience that stays with me I got knocked over by a wave soon thereafter by (laughs) not paying attention turning my back on the ocean I I try not to do that anymore (laughs) 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 coming from and but I found that not scary, but exhilarating. And but the ocean is has always, to me, been that most important thing, a source of life. The ocean is not just rocks and water, it's alive. And I saw that at a very early age. <laughs> and it keeps me going back all the time. The life in the ocean. I love that. The life in the ocean is such a mystical part of it like everything about the ocean is just one big I always refer to it as like a mystery I want to solve because everything in there is just so cool and I want to know everything about everything in it and I'm just so captivated by it and it really is just captivating you know the more we learn about it the more we know we don't know yeah exactly it's going (laughs) I love it so our ignorance is perhaps the biggest discovery about the ocean in recent times yes the I think that there's a perception that earth is fully explored and that the great era of exploration was hundreds of years ago but the reality is we're just getting started especially in the ocean oh the ocean how much is left like undiscovered in the ocean is so cool to me and also in a way freaks me out because I'm like what what's down there what don't we know yet and then as we learn all the stuff we we know we there's so much more we don't know and it's just so cool so exciting and how important as of of right now only about 15 percent of the sea floor has been mapped 
the same degree of accuracy that we have to, for the land or for the moon or Mars or Jupiter. We know a lot more about the configuration of the surface of other planets than we do about ours. The real surface being that which is beneath the ocean where the, the, the land under the sea is, is, is literally still mostly unknown. And, and the, so cool. having a map is one thing, but bottom of the ocean is not the ocean. The top of the ocean is not the ocean. The ocean is all that that's <laughs> in between. And, and our, we're just beginning to explore. I mean, far less than 15% of the ocean itself has been seen by humans. Wow, so, so much left undiscovered. It's all, like... Do you think we will ever get to the point where we know everything about the ocean or do you always think it'll have a little air of mystery to it? Well, about the time we think we've got an understanding of whatever it is, we realize the door is just open to a thousand more questions. <laughs> yeah, that's usually how it goes. That makes sense. Even getting to our own bodies, you know, when I was a child, nobody knew about the microbiome that makes our existence possible. The, the microbes that are part of, of everything, not just humans, but probably every living thing lives in association with many microbes, including microbes themselves that have, have viruses that make their Sometimes it makes their existence, existence troublesome, <laughs> but mostly we need viruses. They're part of the, the whole chemistry of, of life. Yeah, absolutely. The, the ocean is loaded with viruses, microbes, and the greatest diversity of life ever, far yeah. greater than anything on the land, including wondrous rainforests. They're about, 30 to 35 major divisions of animal life. They're all basically in the ocean. Only about half occur on all of the land put together. You can find that number, 15 or so phyla, in a place you can embrace with your arms. You know, just stretch your arms out, make a big circle. Within that circle on a coral reef, you can probably find 15 or 18 different major distinctive kinds of animals, phyla, <laughs> like the difference between insects and birds, yeah. or chordates, if you will, those with a backbone. And think about all the many different kinds of animals that don't have backbones. <laughs> well, it's so insane to me how, like, I remember one of the first ocean experiments or like marine experiments that I did when I was younger that really made me like sit there with like my jaw on the floor was looking at a drop of seawater under a microscope like just one single drop and how there was just thousands of these tiny little animals and I just like my little brain could not wrap my head around it I was in shock and I think that was kind of my moment of like this is the coolest thing I will ever do in my life is look at the ocean and it's just it's so amazing that within such a small amount of area you were saying like there's just this huge diversity of animals and phyla. One of my heroes, Lynn Margulis, a 
biologist who he just said very simply microbes rule microbes they rule. do they do <laughs> that's it end of sentence we can end the interview right there microbes rule that's all that matters at this point but we think we're the boss <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> what about it what, what about the deep sea was it that made you really want to learn more about it because you've funded and you've been in submarines and you've had just the coolest experience with studying the deep sea as well as everything else in it but what was it about the deep sea that was like this is just so unknown and so cool well it's wanting to understand what's out there what's down there and the beauty of it the, the lovely bioluminescent creatures that flash and sparkle and glow with their own living light. It's just trying to connect the dots. Everything does connect to everything else, whether it's in the deep sea or mountaintops. It's all part of ecosystem Earth. And we've yeah. been neglecting the ocean. Most of the attention that humans have given to understanding the rest of life on Earth has been focused on terrestrial systems, which is logical. We are terrestrial by nature, we're air breathers, but most of life on Earth actually lives in the sea. The greatest diversity, the greatest mass, biomass, without any question, it's out there in the ocean. The average depth is two and a half miles, four kilometers. The maximum is 11 kilometers seven miles down, about as high, about as far down as people typically fly in commercial aircraft high in the sky. And wow, this great living space is what makes the rest of the planet possible. No ocean, no life, no water, yeah. no life. No blue, no green, I said. No blue, no green. That is actually one of my all-time favorite quotes, no blue, no green. And I I have shared it multiple times. It's just, it really, it sums it up so perfectly. No blue, no green. And yeah. We need the living ocean. It isn't just, water is the key, but it's not just water and rocks that make our existence possible. It's four and a half billion years of fine tuning with all of these many variations on the theme of living creatures that have shaped this basic material that was the early earth into something that we, <laughs> we think of as home. It is home. Absolutely. Um, on this podcast, we've talked a lot about how it can kind of be hard to wrap your head around how much the ocean plays a role in your life when you don't live in an area where there is a lot of ocean or no coastline. Like if you're inland or don't even aren't around any large bodies of water, it's hard to conceive that that could be a big role in your life. So how do you think it, how do you think you can help people understand that aren't, don't have the ocean easily accessible to them, that it does play a big role in their life? Like how does it impact them? The view of Earth from space gives us a clue. The world literally is blue when viewed from afar. 
it gives us insight that our predecessors might have gradually acquired as people ventured out across the ocean and got a grasp of how how vast it is, how much ocean there is as compared to land masses. But in, until you can actually see it as a whole, the way we have been privileged to see the earth from afar, starting in the, in the, the 20th century, for the first time able to literally look at the whole world and you know, with Google Earth, you can turn the world around and dive into any place that you, you choose to. But the, the, the very idea that we don't have, that we can live without the ocean seems preposterous when you, when you see how much of the planet is ocean. And now we know, we have the evidence that our predecessors did not, that the <laughs> major source of oxygen is from the ocean, not just water. I mean, it comes from life in the ocean. It's like trees generate oxygen, capture carbon. And we respect trees and take care of trees because we, <laughs> we realize many people do that. If you like to breathe, you'll take care of trees. But if you like to breathe, you'll take care of the ocean. Yeah, yeah. So the oxygen has been generated over gazillions of years and still is happening. But it's also responsible for the, the capturing of carbon through yeah. photosynthesis. And so why should you care about the ocean? If you like to breathe, we'll listen up. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Thank That's you. It. I can breathe. Thank you, ocean, for, for being the the basis of the water cycle. Most of the water that goes into the atmosphere, of course, comes from the surface of the ocean into the, into the atmosphere above, into clouds that form and then fall back as rain sleet and snow onto the land and the sea. But again, the surface of the planet is mostly ocean. And the water cycle, the carbon cycle, the oxygen cycle, cycling of nutrients, it's without the ocean, Earth would be as inhospitable as Mars. Wow. And maybe we'll set up housekeeping on Mars someday or people <laughs> will, but it's not having your own life support system built in. So you don't have to wear things on your back and carry yeah. air supply with you. We take it for granted, but we- We really do. We know we- should respect where air and water and and all of the basic nature of whatever it takes to keep us alive is really goes back to the existence of the ocean yeah it really wow that's fantastically put because it really is we wouldn't be here without it end of story yeah take it away and earth would not well, then you could call Earth Earth because it would be important. <laughs> just it would be Earth. Yeah, I remember hearing that quote. That was like how how preposterous to name a planet that is seventy percent water Earth. Like it should be called blue or ocean or something of that sort. And that's just the surface. You know, seventy percent. Yeah. yeah, because it's three dimensional, and 
on the order of 97% of Earth's living space. That is, where is there life on Earth? Most of it is in the ocean. Most of it lives in the dark, below where sunlight shines. The great majority of living space is, is really below a thousand feet, below 300 meters, when you think. Wow. Look out at, at the land, and it seems that this is earth, this is trees, birds, the, the fields, the forests, the deserts, the, but it's actually a fraction of the living space. Wow, the ocean really... is clearly three-dimensional and every drop is alive. Goodness, wow. Wow, that's over. It can be overwhelming to think about how much life is in there that we haven't even like. You'll never get a chance to explore it all. It's so it's in one lifetime. Like it's mind blowing a little bit how alive our oceans are. But but also how vulnerable. When I was a yes. child, and a lot of people still have that perspective that I had as a child that Earth, the ocean is so big that. There's nothing humans could possibly do that could change the nature of the ocean. Yeah, it could never be overexploited. <laughs> no. Put enough stuff, junk, trash, garbage into the ocean to cause harm to the ocean, or that we could take enough of life out of the ocean that it would change the nature of the ocean. But here I am in the 21st century looking at at a greatly changed ocean through what we have put in, through what we have taken out, with 90% of many of the big fish gone. We could see, even when I was a child, that whales were diminishing in numbers. We didn't stop killing whales commercially, we humans, until 1986. And some nations continue to kill our fellow mammals uh, deliberately um, it's exciting to see that for the most part though humans have changed their attitude about about whales about dolphins about seals and sea lions and otters that <laughs> our fellow mammals have protection around the world and their numbers have responded accordingly there are more whales today than there were when I was a child because around the world, people largely have stopped killing them deliberately. We still kill them with entanglement, with fishing yeah. nets that were discarded, with crab pots and lobster pots that tangle even the great whales, as well as a lot of fish and, and seals and sea lions and other creatures, turtles, birds. But again, the idea that we could kill so many animals that it would affect the chemistry of the ocean, the nature of the ocean, the carbon cycle. <laughs> but, but we've got the evidence. It, now we know that our actions, our ability to take ocean wildlife on an industrial scale. First, we could get it and see it with whales. And we stopped in time, perhaps, to see them recover. But we've taken 90% of many of the sharks and other big fish, tunas, cod, swordfish, halibut, grouper, snapper, you name it. We are extraordinarily 
well-equipped through our technologies that have been developed largely in my lifetime and applied on the scale that is unprecedented in places that have never been accessed before from the Arctic to the waters around the Antarctic continent. And now I, I, I look at the ocean and have, have changed from this attitude of, oh, the ocean is too big to fail to say, I don't see how the ocean continues to function at all, considering yeah. how much you have, have done to it. I, I, when you look at the magnitude, the millions of tons of ocean life that we continue to, to extract, how can, the, how can the ocean continue to yield so much? Well, it, there are limits. We, we, we've seen the decline yeah. so that from the 1970s, and when we really began to significantly scale up the extraction of ocean wildlife, we call it seafood, <laughs> fishing on an industrial scale, these mega trawlers, the long lines that now lace the ocean, thousands, thousands, thousands of miles of, of long lines with baited hooks every few feet. You just wonder that there's anything left in the ocean. In fact, places that I knew when I began diving in the 1950s, when life was abundant or now barren, we've done yeah. such a good job of, of taking. And, but, and the only good news in all of this is now we know. We know. Yeah. And we also know that when we stop the killing and really start the caring as we have done with whales, we've done to some extent with birds and turtles, haven't gotten there yet with fish. Fish just are embedded in our culture as something that you eat. Yep. <laughs> but we're eating fish today that nobody even thought about, didn't even know have names for them when I was a child. It's not sustainable. The, the yep. level we're taking is simply not not feasible and it's not a matter of of need it's a matter of choice we don't it's have a to. matter of the demand is there of want versus need that's exactly there's a real distinction yeah of wanting to have that economic growth and all this more 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 need not need not basic needs met it's how much can i have how much can i take how much can i make we need a planet that, that works in our favor yeah <laughs> Yeah. So the ocean needs those fish. We don't. Exactly. We really don't. I mean, some people, those who have few choices about what to eat, that really rely on the ocean for sustenance. And there's some island cultures and coastal communities that that have a long history of of relying on the ocean for their for their own sources of food. Yeah. But once you start turning wildlife into money, whether it's elephants or tuna, you, you draw, you, you cross the line. Yep. So it's no longer, I'm hungry. I, <laughs> I need to eat you. So thank you very much. <laughs> whether it's a bird, or a little furry thing or, or a fish. That's the way we used to make a living across the board 10,000 years ago before agriculture really got to be a serious source of groceries and food, but um, 
for most of us, eating wildlife is 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 a choice. It's mm-hmm. it's something that we can do without. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It goes back to that taking the fish, like you were mentioning, taking the, these islands that rely on catching a fish to eat versus catching all the fish to sell to someone else. Like that's right. kind of that distinction right there. Absolutely. Money. Yeah, fish is money. Or you name it. You know. It's interesting to compare, like you were mentioning how we've kind of made reparations with the whales and the turtles and these very charismatic animals that are easy to attach yourself to. <laughs> But I feel like we're so disconnected from fish. Like you said, they're just oh, food on our plate. Yeah, divers know that fish have faces. Fish have personality. Fish are so cute. And they are. They're, they're just amazing. They're as, as colorful in terms of their character, not just the, the, <laughs> the aesthetic beauty that they, they have, but uh, they're just extraordinary. You think of birds how people are passionate about about birds because they they get to see them they they embrace them with a sense of wonder and awe those of us who are privileged to go down in the ocean and and see these creatures on their own terms to get to know how they live and to see them you know you go into the ocean thinking you're there to watch the fish and the fish are watching you (laughs) they really are I mean, even Jacques Cousteau in his early explorations of, of the Mediterranean uh, commented on how the big grouper were like scholars. They would just follow the divers around and observe the divers. <laughs> and it was a little spooky, but we, we look for life elsewhere in the universe. And, and here in our own planet, there are forms of life intelligent forms of life at that, that um, we're just beginning to get to, to yeah. see with new eyes, new appreciation. It's hard to know what a grouper is like when all you see is a piece of meat on your plate. Exactly, exactly. It really, I feel like once people start getting invested into the ocean and enjoying it and spending time in the ocean, it really change, like flips the script. Like I, I can't, I can't eat salmon now, specifically salmon, because I can just picture them so easily. And I don't eat any other fish, but like, I'll see salmon and I just like, I just can see them in the water. I see their yeah. little faces and I'm like, how? Pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm like, oh, my friends, fish are friends. Come on. Mm, yeah. So you mentioned earlier something about how the ocean captures carbon or works in carbon yeah. capturing. What does like we've talked about the role that the ocean plays with our life and the life forms in it, but for our just in general environment, how does it affect the climate and what's it doing to protect our climate and well, what it's trying to do to protect our climate to combat us? That's another major part of why we should care that the ocean exists. The ocean absorbs heat and holds heat, distributes cold and warm waters around the earth through these cold and warm currents that that really shape the, the 
the planet in a way that that is hospitable for for us stabilizes the overall temperature of the planet maintains the systems in ways that that make what we now take for granted possible you know and as the currents change and they do over time you see a reflection in the, the changing climate the ocean actually overall shapes climate and weather and we i, I find it baffling that in the current discussions about climate and concerns about the changes that are taking place it's taken a while for the ocean to be put on the balance sheet which is really baffling because the ocean drives climate and weather it is i mean no ocean you don't really have climate or weather you'd have just rocks you wouldn't you wouldn't have an atmosphere that is beneficial in, in the ways that we now, again, take for granted. So the, when you ask, how does climate affect the ocean that we should really flip it around and say, how does the ocean affect climate? Because that's the, the first question that we should be asking. Look at the whole planet, not just the part above the land and above the ocean. It's not just the atmosphere. It's not just the, the, the air, if you will, and what's in the air. It's where does it start? It starts basically through the actions in the ocean. And the economists are often um, known for their habit of following the money climate scientists need to get into the habit, well, I guess they are in a way, of following the carbon, and that will lead them straight into the ocean. <laughs> it's, I wanna say sometimes, it's the carbon cycle, stupid. We, we, we respect trees because they capture and hold carbon, not just capturing it through photosynthesis, but storing it in their tissues, in their roots, and then in the ground itself. And then through the whole chain of life, the creatures that nibble on the leaves capture and sequester the carbon, and those the insects and other creatures, the grazers. That's the carbon cycle in action. And we kind of get it with trees. Save trees, plant a tree, you're, you're helping to pr protect the climate. What about the ocean, the carbon there? the International Monetary Fund commissioned a study that was released at, at, in Davos in 2020 at the big economic conference, where they calculated that the carbon value of whales today, living carbon relating to climate is worth at least a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars wow. is the value of living whales because of their role in the carbon cycle. Wow. And if it works for whales, it should work with tuna and sharks, and shrimp and lobsters and plankton and all the rest of life in the ocean. 
So calculate that if you're just looking, following the money, follow the carbon. Consider wow. what we're extracting from the ocean, while at the same time we're saying we've got to we've got to capture carbon. We've got to figure out how to accelerate not, not just the the re reducing emissions of carbon dioxide, but we have to figure out how do we capture carbon. And of course, the trees are doing that, but of course, the ocean is doing even more. Yeah. It's been doing it through periods of time that, that preceded life on the land. <laughs> it was way back in history, the carbon cycle, the oxygen cycle, the chemistry of life, the history of life on earth. It's written in the ocean and it's still there, still going on. Absolutely. So what, if you could just yell at the world for a second and tell them what to do to just turn everything around or at least slow things down, what is it that we need to be doing? Like no more fishing, no more this, like what, what would you be your, if someone gave you a microphone that was yelling at the whole world, what would you yell? You know, in 2020, when the whole world kind of hit the pause button, <laughs> I, I took advantage of that year and sometime in the previous year to get started on trying to answer those questions. And in a, the book that is coming out now in November, uh, Ocean, A Global Odyssey, it gave me time to literally dive into, into what we know, what we don't know, what we need to know about the world we live in, and mostly the blue part. And in the book, I have tried to distill some of the basic information about here is the ocean. <laughs> Here's what we know about the origin of the ocean the nature of the ocean, nature of life in the ocean. There's a big fold out in the book that shows that great diversity in broad strokes, the, the major divisions that most people don't even know of their existence, but they should. These are our fellow travelers in space, extraordinary creatures that are part of our life support system. And I think it's great to get to know them it's, it's an exciting journey. But then what would, in response to your question, I did my best, not just from my own perspective, but trying to gather thoughts slash wisdom from great minds that have addressed those questions. What can we do now that we know? We're so fortunate in the 21st century to be armed with a superpower of knowing what our predecessors could not. Kids of today know what Earth looks like from space. No one could know before the middle of the 20th century when for the first time we were able to get up high in the sky, far enough away that it looks as though you could hold the world in your hands. But, and in a way, that's what we can do now. We can make, connect the dots, see how what happens in, in the Sahara Desert, how the dusts 
are blown all the way across the Atlantic Ocean and wind up on reefs in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean Sea. And some of them dust the snows of the mountains in, in Colorado. I mean, we're seeing how everything connects in ways that, that the smartest people who ever lived before the middle of the 20th century, they could not know. Now kids know it, and that's cause for hope. That it's, it's knowledge that we are armed with an awareness that what we're doing impacts the whole range of, of connections that make our existence possible. That I, I think the appreciation for the, that it's, that civilization is something that is extraordinary when you when you look at the works of art, when you look at the architecture, when you look at how we communicate, and, you know, you'd think we're just the greatest thing that's ever come along until you realize that we're a part of nature, not apart from it. And the, that with all of our great intelligence, all of our great creations, that we have created a world that is vulnerable to, to our own actions. And it would be really bad news if we didn't understand where we're at right now that we are vulnerable yeah. and that everything we care about is vulnerable and that we can look around in, in nature and find that maybe as great as we think we are, there are miracles out there that we have yet to even begin to understand that every living thing has its own kind of superpower. Yeah. <laughs> we should respect and learn from it and incorporate into the big questions. How can we make peace with the natural systems that make our existence possible? Right now, it's like we're waging war on nature. We're, we're destroying the very systems that keep us alive. Well, there's one thing when we did not know, but now we understand, we can see it with 90% of the big fish, and many of the little ones too, either gone or in a sharp state of decline. Half the coral reefs, more than half in the Caribbean are gone in my lifetime. The coral reefs are just something obvious. When you look at phytoplankton, the scientists who've been studying and measuring the levels of phytoplankton in the ocean, these generators of oxygen, these capturers of carbon, these sources of food for life in the ocean, the drivers of the carbon cycle, they've declined by as much as 40% in my lifetime. Wow. Because we can trace back, why is this happening? The changing chemistry of the ocean driven by human activity. So we know the source. We also know how do we fix it? So back to your questions, long circling answer. Look in the mirror, everyone, each of you. What, who are you and what do you have that is 
capable of it? What are you capable of that can make a difference? Yes. Be good with numbers, be good with words, be good with kids, do you have a way with animals? Uh, can you sing? Can you dance? Whatever it is that you can do and love doing and do well, what sets you apart from everybody else? Because everyone is unique. It's true with fish too. There aren't any <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's true of cats and dogs and horses. It's true of every living thing, but it's certainly true of you, whoever you are. Don't let the opportunity pass to be positive about what you do. Everyone makes a difference. Even if you if you think you're doing nothing, that's that's your choice. You are maybe part of the problem. Others have to work double time to make up for your complacency. But, you know, we all can do something. And if all of us, all now nearly 8 billion of us, do our thing in a positive direction, that's power. That is superpower. And we need that to go from where we are to get to a better place. Look at the choices you make every day about what you wear, what you eat, how you live your life. You should ask where your food comes from, how it has gotten to your table, <laughs> and how does, what impact do your choices have on, on the world around you? I suggest that if you are an adult, if you have kids, take a kid out to some wild place, whether it's the forest or the wild desert or certainly to the ocean, and look at the future through their eyes. And, and just imagine that you are looking at the future, that this is the world you're going to grow up in. It actually, most of us can think in terms of the next 10 years, this, this crucial time. Yeah. Our kids have a much longer horizon perhaps to, to imagine. And the world is changing so fast. If you do not have a child of your own, borrow a child, <laughs> whatever it takes. Think of yourself when you were a child and look back on what's happened in your lifetime and imagine if we had known when you were a child what is now known, what would you have chosen to do that might have made a difference along the way? Maybe you made all the right choices and you're out there as a superhero. <laughs> but well, most of the decisions made 50 years ago, well, we, we did not know what we now know. Yeah. Now we've got the edge. It would be great if we could take what we now know and go back 50 years and start over. But the best we can do is look at the evidence, look at the trends, imagine where climate is going to take us if we don't do anything to turn from the emissions of carbon into the atmosphere, protecting the natural systems that are vital for capturing carbon, storing carbon. Imagine if we just let things slide. Yeah over the edge into a place that is not very hospitable for life as we know. And we think we 
we, we, we honor all the art, all the music, all our great creations. Yeah, well, we first should honor the laws of nature so that we can protect what we love, protect what we care about, and not anticipate loss through storms, loss through fires, loss through sea level rise, loss through an atmosphere that is no longer what it was when we were kids. Absolutely. Already not what it was when we were kids because we put so much stuff into the atmosphere, into the water, the, the chemistry of the planet has changed. It's not as uh, robust as it was, healthy as it was years ago. Absolutely. I really love the outlook of the, we know what we need to know now. It's just a matter of doing what we need to do. Like we have the information we need. And it's almost to a point where going back to my old sports days, I remember a coach said to our team one day, doing the same thing over and over again and respect, expecting different results. Uh, definition of crazy, the Einstein quote. And it's one of those, like, that's what we're in, stuck in right now is we have this information. That's what we need. Let's do something different with it. Let's try something else, see what else we can do with it and go from there. Got it. You, you got it exactly right. <laughs> down there I love that well now it's time for some fun questions funner questions a little lighter note than let's change the world you have spent a lot of time in the ocean in different places in the ocean and I've seen a lot of different ocean animals and ocean beings and if you could choose to live a life as an ocean being what ocean being what do you be I hope you've seen that film called The Octopus Teacher, or My yeah. Octopus Teacher. <laughs> Wouldn't yeah. it be fun to be an octopus? <laughs> Wouldn't it? It would be the, so cool. You'd be so smart. I'd probably, I think I might be smarter as an octopus than I am as a human, honestly. <laughs> I think that's what might end up happening. They, they would be so they cool. are such amazing creatures to be able to change your color, change your shape, and and those eyes that are hauntingly like our own eyes, their, their structure is very similar. And, and they're related to clams for heaven's sakes. I mean, they're mollusks. I know. I, I think I was in my like grade 12 year, I learned that and I was like, no, no. I thought my teacher was lying. There's no way an octopus and a clam are related. And then as I like got through my degree, I was like, well, look at that. They are, what a thing. It would be fun to be a, a tuna. Imagine being able to travel over thousands of miles and go back to the same places for feeding and to getting together with other tunas to hoop it up and make more tunas. Ocean, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have you have a built-in GPS. Oh, I need one were. of those now. And and it. to move is so fast. They have a down the length of their body, something called a lateral line. You can see it on most fish. There's a line down their side. What is that? It's filled with, with sensory organs. We don't know because we can't, we're not fish. We don't know what they actually feel, but it's, it's thought that they can sense motion and are able, you know, you see a school of fish tightly packed together, but they're not touching with that lateral line that enables yeah. them to to, to stay without, without bumping into one another and to stream along at, at incredible speeds. Well, certainly the tuna 
can go yeah. as fast as a, they say, as fast as a nuclear submarine, however fast that is. When they, they're just, they have fins that tuck into um, their, their pectoral fins up right in, in their head behind their eyes uh, that, that fit into little depressions in their body so that it really is streamlined. And they can take their dorsal fin and it gets lowered into a slot so that it's really streamlined. And the tail moves back and forth in such a way that little vortices, little whirlpools are formed that, that create a source of energy for them that they, they, they capture that energy with something on the order of greater than 90% efficiency. We don't have propulsion systems that can capture the energy with anything oh. close to what a tuna can do. So there's Tunas so many things so that, cool. that we need to think about. I'd, I'd love to be a tuna for a while. <laughs> I don't need <laughs> a sandwich or a salad or a sushi. I mean, no, out no. The ocean. <laughs> that's it, a tuna no, that's in the ocean where they belong. Oh, goodness. Or any of the creatures that bioluminesce. Oh, that always blows my mind that there's creatures that can do that. I yeah, like I understand it, but I don't understand it. <laughs> but it'd be so cool to be able to just create this boom, flash of bioluminescent blue-green light. Yeah, just like here I am. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Love it. But so you know, when, when I when I I have thought about it. I mean I have being a dolphin would be just the greatest thing for a while, you know, I, breathe to the top of your head. And but I think I think I'm really happy to be as a sea creature to be a human. We're yeah. all sea creatures. I mean, we sure all are. Are. <laughs> and we have the capacity to do what even the smartest creatures on the land or in the sea cannot do. We have the, we have this extraordinary capacity as human beings to learn from the past. We, we start out as kids, as the beneficiaries of everything that's gone on before, that people have learned things and they passed it along so learn things, pass along, learn it. So we've got alphabets, we've got numbers, we've got calculations that our predecessors have made about all sorts of things. We've figured out how to make clothes. We've figured out how to make shoes. We've, we've developed means of agriculture that we, we've inherited all this. What a gift our predecessors, the gift of knowledge that we can tap into libraries, the internet, we, we, especially now as never before, we are the luckiest generation ever to come along because of the power of what is out there and accessible for us to understand. So what's not to love about being a human being in the 21st century? You can look around and say, oh, what are these problems? We've got war, we've got poverty, we've got disease. Woe is us. Um, 
but never before have we been as prepared to understand and take actions that can secure an enduring place for ourselves within the natural systems that make our existence possible. So as a sea creature, all of us are, aren't we? No Absolutely. Blue, no <laughs> we all need the ocean as much as any coral reef or tuna fish. We, we, uh, we have the best chance we'll ever have. Yeah. Years ago, we didn't know enough. 50 years from now, it may be too late to take action that we now can take. We can be, for civilization, that generation here early in the 21st century that moved from decline to recovery and then finally making peace with the systems that make our existence possible. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. What a great way to put it. We, we have that option right out in front of us. Why not take it? Lucky us. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> I'm ready now. So for all the people listening to this podcast who are obviously going to be as ready as we are right now, all fired up to go do this change, where can they get information or what books do you recommend reading? Like your books and your information, where can they get information that can help them make this change? Well, we again are beneficiaries of the internet access to knowledge. We really have to be careful because we have to be like, as, as we were as children, we start out asking questions. Who, what, where, why, how? And we still do that, of course. And you go to the internet. But kids are really good at saying, how do you know that? Show me. You know, you, say, you get a little bit of information. How deep is the ocean? Okay, you get a number. And then a kid would ask innocently, oh, that's cool. How do you know that? So you might get information, but never stop asking, how do you know? Where did that information come from? Who did the measurements? Who was out there? Where's the basic source of that information? If you just take the superficial stuff that is just like a, you know, a river just flowing by with all the information. But when you really start asking questions that you want to know the, the reality. So how do you know the climate's changing? You know, there are people who are, are scoffers. They say, oh, you know, I don't think it's changing. And those who say, well, here's how we know. Mm. Here's where the measurements come from. Here is the scientist who drilled a core through Arctic ice or Antarctic ice and examined the little bubbles that were captured that showed what the level of oxygen, level of carbon dioxide was at a certain point in the past. Or they took a core from out there in the deep ocean. And here's how they handled that long core extracted from the depths of the ocean. And here are the questions they asked. And here's what they did to verify the, the truth. Anybody can do this. Everybody should do this. If you really want to get integrity with the answers, you know, how do you know? 
who are the trusted sources? Did this come from your Sunday popular magazine? Did it come from um, some, well, I don't know, hearsay? <laughs> your neighbor said, I don't believe that climate is changing. I'm not going to wear a mask or I'm not going to, you know. <laughs> Be your own true to the evidence self, you know, ask the questions. Find those sources you trust. Do you trust your neighbor or do you trust a doctor? <laughs> and it, there are some doctors I wouldn't trust too, but you know, it just depends. Yeah. You, we develop and proceed based on evidence, based on truth, based on the reality, not on hearsay. We, you know, I despair sometimes of the way that we are so influenced by marketing that, that we need to market the truth. <laughs> yep. yep. That are conveyors of, of the reality and, and to be able to encourage people to go to trusted sources and to keep asking the questions that get right to the heart of, oh, this is how they know. Yeah. Because evidence surely is there or it isn't. And if it isn't, then you say, hmm, well, maybe we'll find out. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, <laughs> maybe yes. <laughs> that's, maybe that's the niche I need to fill right there. I love that. But absolutely, yes. Always be asking questions and seeking out answers. I love that. I love Fair that piece of advice. advice. Yeah, keep verifying. Keep, keep trying to get to the, you know, what I love about scientists, real scientists, is that we, we, we come up with these, with evidence, we think we know how things work, and then somebody comes along and shows us that what we thought was true is not. <laughs> we used to think that continents were stable, that where they are today is where they've always been. It wasn't really until late in the 20th century that we came up with evidence that shows the continents have moved around and they still are moving around. We found the, the source of, of, of knowing how it happens with, with the plate tectonics, the fact that the, the mid-ocean ridges, that there's the volcanic action that down the center of the Atlantic Ocean, for example, Sea floor spreading is taking place actively right now. It's been taking place through the history of, of the earth. That they, they keep there's a, a motion that the plates moving apart, or in some cases colliding, the shifting position of the continents. Nobody really, even Rachel Carson, when she wrote a definitive book called The Sea Around Us, published in 1951, had the idea that what the, 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 the continents were basically today what they'd always been. There was some beginning thought that maybe they had shifted somewhat. And there are puzzles about how fossils along the coast, the west coast of Africa, somehow were hauntingly similar to fossils that were on the eastern side of South America. Now, how could this be? Same, you know. It looks as though the big pieces of the puzzle that came apart. And 
now we know that's exactly what did happen. That there was one large landmass that split up. And during the time when life was prosperous on Earth, may not have been a time when, when there were creatures that we now know, but there's plenty of life, especially in the ocean. And, oh, you know, it's just fascinating that scientists who risk their reputation on having a stable set of continents placed exactly where they are today, where they always, thought they were always there, were excited to find evidence that they were wrong. Yes. Yay, now we yes. know. And that's yes. scientists celebrate the new knowledge that, that puts old ideas as just a part of history. That's what we used to think, but now we know, and we've got, and why? Because there's evidence. And when you see, when you get that, that surge of, of discovery, of joy, of, of now we can see what we could not see before. Yeah. And then it's not just the joy that you have all by yourself, but it's sharing that. It's not good enough for you to have the satisfaction of, look what I found, look what I see, but then telling the world about it and yes. moving things armed with this new insight. The discovery of viruses, discovery of how do we deal with polio, for example? How do we combat some of the problems because of the evidence of knowing, of understanding, of seeing right down to the, oh, the understanding of how things function and being able to respect those laws of nature. Absolutely. I feel like the best part of science is sometimes being wrong and then sharing that you were wrong because it's like, I might've been wrong, but now we know, and now we have answers, like getting these answers and sharing the answers. That's precisely what it is. Exciting part. Oh, I love it. It has been truly phenomenal getting to talk to you today. And thank you so, so much for joining me on the podcast today. <laughs> well, it's been fun talking with you. I thank you. Love the journey. For you to share that or anything that you wanted to do with that. <laughs> absolutely. Well, it was absolutely incredible to get to talk to you, and I will let you go so you can enjoy the rest of your day and do what you need to do. And thank you again. I cannot thank you enough for chatting with me. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye for now. I'll come back and Bye for watch now. The yes. Watch the tide come in. <laughs> I will. I will. And I, I'm serious. When you come up here, you let me know and I will take you to those tides. I will take you to the best place. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. I love sharing these stories with you and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, stay salty.